please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. We're going to continue to look at the lives of the disciples and a special exhortation for you men this morning. I appreciate Ben's words uh, to us. Uh, I also echo those, encourage us as, as men as we look at the discipling relationship between these 12 men and Jesus that, that we as men especially this morning would, would take that upon ourselves to follow after the Lord Jesus in discipling uh, ourselves and discipling our, our families, discipling the people that God has, has placed in our lives. Uh, also, just so you know, uh, men, if you uh, are good and you sit through the service and you don't leave early, there's a, a gift for you this morning as, as you exit. And so uh, I, I plan on exiting and, and getting my gift and encourage uh, you to, to do the same. We're very grateful to God for the, the men that he has, has placed in this church uh, who love the Lord and are, are committed to following after him in obedience. Well, please uh, stand with me as we read uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, continuing to look at the lives of these 12 men upon whom Christ built his church. Verse 12 of Luke chapter 6 says this, in, those, in these days he went out to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the men that you have given to this church. We thank you for how you have worked in their lives, and we thank you that there are so many who are committed to walking in godliness, and we know there are many barriers to obedience, and so we pray that you would work within their hearts, enable them, strengthen them to be the men you've called them to be. We pray for those especially who are fathers and who have been entrusted with the task of discipling young people in the faith, and bringing them up and nurturing them, and so we would ask for special grace for them this morning. We thank you for your word. Open it to our, our heart, open our hearts to it this morning. We pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began looking at Jesus' choosing of these 12 men, and we kind of looked at the lives of these 12 disciples. As we began looking at the lives of these 12 disciples last week, we saw that sometimes over the last 2,000 years, the temptation has been to, to place these men literally and figuratively on, on a pedestal. But we saw that as we come to Scripture, Scripture paints a more realistic picture of these men and their failures and their strengths. These were men who loved the Lord Jesus Christ very dearly. And yet, at the same time, there were men who had failings. They could be self-centered. They could be very dense at times. Their faith would falter. They could get into arguments. These were men who, at the same time, even with their failings, persevered in their love for Jesus Christ. We talked last week about this, this picture by Rembrandt and how Rembrandt placed himself in the boat with the other 12 disciples, signifying that just as these 12 disciples needed Christ's transformative work in their lives, so Rembrandt recognized that he also needed Christ's work within his life to be able to do the things that God had called him to do, to take him through the storms of life. We saw last week, as we looked at these 12 disciples, kind of one main idea, that ultimately our success in ministry is not based upon the one who is called, 
but upon the one who does the calling. Our success in ministry is not dependent upon we who are called, but upon the one who's doing the calling. Christ himself works in our lives, transforms us, changes us, so that we can be the disciples that he desires us to be, so that we can do the the ministry that he wants us to do. And we looked last week at the first four disciples. Remember, we saw that there are 12 disciples, but they are kind of broken into three groups of four. And this first group of four that's always mentioned together were those who are closest to Jesus. And we have the most biographical information about these four. We saw, as we looked at Peter, we saw a broken leader. And we saw there that that Jesus breaks the proud so that he can use the humble. We saw next, as we looked at his brother Andrew's life, the quiet evangelist, that Jesus uses the meek in very mighty ways. We next looked at James, the son of thunder, and we saw that God uses the the fervent passion and, and turns those, the fervent passions in a person, for his purposes. And then we looked lastly at John, who was a person who was passionate about the truth and how Christ worked within his life this, and turned him into a loving shepherd. As we looked at John's life, we saw that Jesus fills the hearts of his followers with both love and truth. So that was last week. We looked at the first four disciples, and we saw things that Jesus did in their lives. And as we looked at the things that Jesus did in their lives, again, the The big idea, the main thing we looked at is that it depends not upon the one who's called, but the one who does the calling. This week, we're looking at the other eight disciples, and we have less biographical information about these eight men. Sometimes, all the information we have about them is just they appear in a list of Jesus' disciples, and so there's less that we understand about their character. We kind of see some snippets from their lives, but really, usually, not enough to glean a a full picture of these eight men, for the most part. What I want us to do as we look at the remaining eight disciples, therefore, is draw some principles for ourselves as we think about following Jesus in discipleship. Again, the big idea is that it depends not upon the, our success in ministry depends not upon the one who's called, but the one who does the calling. But as God calls us to discipleship, there are things that he enables us to do. There are things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, allowing us to follow Jesus more fully. And so what I want us to do as we look at following Jesus more fully is see some things that we are to do as disciples of Jesus to follow him more effectively. Eight action points as we look at these eight remaining disciples. And let's just go ahead and dive into the text. In fact, if you're looking for a section to turn to in your Bibles, kind of turn to the Gospel of John because that's where we'll be most of the time. And really... Most of the time, again, we just have one or two, maybe three verses that are in all of Scripture about these disciples. And what we're going to do is kind of look at one of these verses and and see a principle for us as we follow Jesus in discipleship. The first disciple that we're looking at here in the list that begins this second group of four disciples is Philip. And go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, we see Jesus in the upper room discourse instructing his disciples. John chapter 14, we're looking at Philip here. Verse 7, Jesus is actually talking to Thomas, who we'll look at in just a moment. And Jesus says this in verse 7 of John 14. He says, if you had known, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then we see Philip speak. 
There's four times, I believe, in Scripture we see Philip speak. This is the last. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Lord, Philip is saying, we want to see a, a physical manifestation of God's glory. Show us that, and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, oh, Philip, verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not, here's that word again, know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Philip, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't ask to see a physical manifestation of the Father because you'd realize, I'm it. John has introduced us to Philip four times in his gospel. This is the last time. He introduces us to Philip for the first time in John chapter 1. Philip is from Bethsaida, the same city as Peter and his brother Andrew. He's probably a fisherman. In the Gospel of John, we see him going fishing with the other disciples. So uh, Philip introduces uh, his, his friend Nathaniel to Jesus, as we'll look at later in John chapter 1. But in the rest of the mentions of Philip's speech in the Gospel of John, we see a picture of a person who doesn't know Jesus fully. And Jesus calls him out here in John chapter 14. In John chapter 6, there's the feeding of the 5,000. And in John chapter 6, John tells us that Jesus sees these multitudes. Philip is next to him. Philip sees the multitudes coming. And Jesus asks Philip this question. John says he does it to test him. He says, Philip, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? Again, John says he did this to test him. And Philip does this. He looks at the crowds and he says, you know, if we had 200 denarii, that wouldn't be enough money to even buy a little bit for so many people to eat. Uh, Philip fails Jesus' test. Jesus' test is, are you going to include me in your calculations, Philip? Philip looks out at the crowd, doesn't even think about Jesus' ability to provide, and says, there's no way. The next time we see Philip in the Gospel of John is in John chapter, John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, it's interesting, Philip is a Greek name. It, it's uh, speculated that perhaps his uh, parents were Hellenistic Jews, that is, Greek-speaking Jews. And perhaps for, the, for uh, that reason, uh, Philip doesn't have a Hebrew name. He's, he's simply known as Philip. In John chapter 12, some Greeks come to Philip. Perhaps, we don't know this, but perhaps because he was the most fluent in Greek. And the Greeks come to Philip and they say, uh, Sir, we want to see Jesus. We desire to be introduced to Jesus. We want to know him. And Philip, very interesting, doesn't know what to do. Perhaps he's thinking about how Jesus says he's been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. At one time, as he sent them out, he said, don't go into any Gentile towns. Yet at the same time, he knows, well, Jesus does say, I have sheep that are not of this fold also. He said that early in the Gospel of John. And Philip, as Greeks come to him saying, we want to be introduced to Jesus, Philip doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know Jesus well enough to know what Jesus would want to do in this situation. And so he goes to Andrew. We talked about Andrew last week. He says, hey, what do I do here? Andrew and Philip introduced him to Jesus. And now in John chapter 14, as we've just looked at, Philip is told by Jesus, how is it possible that you've been with me so long and don't know me? Here's the principle I think we learned from Philip's life. You, as we're thinking about our responsibility through the enabling of the Holy Spirit in, in discipleship, you must know Jesus, not merely be around him. 
you must know Jesus. It's not enough to merely be around him. It's possible to be a part of a church, to be involved in spiritual things, to read your Bible, to be involved in ministry, and yet not know Jesus. That's a scary truth. Think about Father's Day, and maybe you've had this experience in your relationship with your dad if God has has blessed you with a father whom you've known. But as a young child, you are around your dad, and you enjoy spending time with your dad, but as you get older, you realize, boy, there's a lot I don't know about my dad's life. And as you get into the teen years, and maybe you turn 19, 18, 18, 19, 20, 25, you begin talking to your father, again, if God gives you this opportunity, and you find out things about his childhood, about his young adult life, that you had no clue. And then you get to be 30, 35, and you realize, I have no idea about my dad's relationship with God. You have been around your father, but as you get older, you've come to know him more deeply. As we begin looking at the Gospel of Luke, I said one of our objections, uh, objectives as we go through the Gospel of Luke is to come to know Jesus. It's possible to know a lot of facts about Jesus and yet have kind of an idolatrous conception of him. That is, this Jesus that we've created in our own minds and, and painted this, our own portraits of Jesus and not known the Jesus of Scripture. It's possible... It is possible to be around Christians, to be around the church, to know facts about Jesus, and yet not know him deeply. God's call on our lives is to know Jesus, to be transformed by our knowledge of him. Philip asks a very foolish question here in John chapter 14 because he doesn't know Jesus. As we come to know Jesus, we're going to know more fully about what his desire for our lives, what his desire for our lives is. Think about First John, First John chapter four. We're thinking about how do we know that we are growing in our knowledge of, of Jesus and our love for Him. First John four says that by this we know if we love Him that we we love others. First John five tells us that we know that we love Jesus as we obey His commandments, as we continue in our love for Jesus, knowing Him. It's going to affect how we view other believers. And it's going to affect our obedience with God. If we look at Philip's life, we see that you and I must know Jesus, not merely be around him. Well, let's look next at this disciple that Luke calls Bartholomew. You can turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We are introduced to Bartholomew in, in John chapter 1. Now, uh, we believe that uh, Bartholomew is the same disciple that's Nathaniel in, in the Gospel of John. Bartholomew is actually not a, a given name, it's a nickname, it means son of Talmai, and uh, Nathaniel is a, a given name, and Nathaniel and Bartholomew seem to be used interchangeably at times, and so here in John chapter 1, we're introduced to the disciple that Luke calls Bartholomew, and John calls Nathaniel, and we're inter- introduced to him in John chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 43 of John chapter 1. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, when we just looked at Philip, and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, or Bartholomew, and said to him, We have found him. Notice, notice what Philip says to Nathanael about Jesus. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip, as he comes to Nathanael, says, Look, based upon God's word, uh, this is whom we found, the Messiah. Philip says that, and Nathanael responds in verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the, the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now we know very little else about Nathaniel's life, but I want you to kind of see a principle about discipleship here from John chapter 1. As Jesus explains who he is to Bartholomew, Nathaniel here, and he, Nathaniel responds in faith, Nathaniel calls Jesus the, the king of Israel, and Jesus promises him, look, you're right, I'm the king of Israel, and you're going to see greater things than these. Because of Nathaniel's belief in Jesus, he has the opportunity to participate in incredible kingdom work. But, as you look again at the text, realize how closely or how close Nathaniel came to missing out on participating in Jesus's kingdom work. Philip takes him to scripture and says, we found the one of whom Moses and the prophets speak. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel objects. And his objection is not based upon God's word but upon his own prejudices. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Not a biblical objection, prejudice. Here's the principle that I think we learn from Nathaniel's life. The principle is we must realize that our prejudices are sometimes, or our prejudices are barriers to God's kingdom work. Nathaniel has the opportunity to participate in God's kingdom work, and because of his prejudices, he almost misses out. Next month, the month of July, uh, Dr. Mark Young is going to be coming to Bethany Community Church. Uh, Dr. Mark Young was a missions professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, now he is the president of Denver Theological Seminary, and we have the opportunity to listen to him next month for our missions conference. I'm very excited about him coming here. He was actually... Uh, a professor, whenever I, att I attended Dallas Theological Seminary for uh, a short period of time before I finished up at Moody, he was my uh, professor for my first seminary course and just an incredibly gifted teacher of God's Word. One of the classes that I sat in on his uh, for my, my missions class was one on the uh, theology of missions from the book of Acts. I actually spent several class periods on this, walking us through the book of Acts and showing us how the people of God became the people of God. As Dr. Young talked about how the people of God became the people of God in the book of Acts, he talked about barriers that existed to becoming the people of God for the Jews and the Gentiles in this, in this book of Acts. And he kind of talked about three barriers that exist in becoming God's people as we talk about people from, from different groups. Uh, one barrier that exists that he identified, that I think he's right on this, is, is what we call stereotyping. You know what stereotyping is, right? You say, well, here's a, a person from a certain group, kind of a, a member of this, this larger group, and I look at the attributes and the characteristics of this person, and I, I transfer them to the group at, at, as a whole. So I, you know, I think of a, a smart Asian person or a, a Muslim terrorist or, or, or a good-looking pastor. Um, 
You're just looking at one data point and extrapolating from that. In fact, uh, <laughs> this, this week I was, I was talking to someone, and uh, they, they saw me uh, running, and they said, we didn't think that, that we didn't think pastors ran. And I said, well, it's hard to call what I was doing running, but, uh, but that, that's a stereotype, right? We, we have certain boxes that we, we place pers- uh, people in, and that could be a barrier to becoming the people of God, especially when it's combined with some other barriers. So, for example, there's something called ethnocentrism. Now, ethnocentrism is whenever you take your culture, your ethnic group, or whatever subgroup it is, and you say, this is the standard by which all other cultural groups should be judged. For example, we think of our, our, our North American culture or our, our subculture of a of middle class or poor class or a wealthy class, and we, we believe that that's the, the ultimate standard in culture, and all their cultures should be judged against what we're used to, and that brings us to the third barrier to becoming the people of God, and that's prejudices. Now, what a prejudice is, is that's whenever you, you take your own subculture group and you say, not only is this the standard by which other cultures should be judged, but I'm going to have a certain amount of uh, antipathy or, or hostile feelings, maybe high hostility or low hostility or, or some sort of negative feelings towards people of other culture groups or other economic classes or people from different family backgrounds. You say, okay, that's, that's very all nice and theoretical, Daniel, but how does that impact us as the people of God? Well, well let me just kind of give you a little illustration here. It's estimated by the, by the year 2042, that's 30 years away, there will be no majority ethnic group. How does that make you feel? Does that concern you? Does it concern you that our culture is changing so dramatically in its makeup, its ethnic makeup, its economic makeup? Does that scare you? How are we as Christians to respond to the dramatic cultural shift that's going to take place in our country, in our communities? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that we as Christians should not fear changing cultures, but be excited by the incredible opportunities for the gospel in new contexts. It's true. The world as you knew it as a child, if you've grown up a while ago, the world you know it if you're a child now, it's changing. It's going to be dramatically different in the coming decades. For a Christian, a Christian views culture in this way. A culture is neither good nor bad inherently. Now, there are bad and good aspects of a culture, but inherently, a culture is neither necessarily good nor bad. What a culture is, is a vehicle for the gospel. And our task as Christians is to look at within a certain cultural subgroup and say, now how can I become able to share the gospel with these people within that group? Maybe it's learning a different language or or learning how to to, uh, respond in different ways, but As Christians, our goal is not to preserve a certain culture, but through the gospel to transform people who are part of the culture so they can become passionate followers of Christ. As we think about the dramatic change that our country and our community is going to go through over the next several decades, there should be a sense of excitement, I believe, unless the Lord returns uh, more quickly, and we can be excited about that as well. As we think about the incredible opportunities for the gospel as the world around us changes. Let me just kind of give you two applications as we think about this uh, further. First of all, the church, listen to this, the church cannot be a place of arrogant prejudices. The church cannot be that place. 
The church must be a place that embraces people no matter what their background. Secondly, secondly, as believers, we must be passionate, more passionate for the lost than we are for our own culture. We must have a passion for the lost that supersedes our love for our culture. And and don't get me wrong, it's not wrong to enjoy the culture God has placed you in. But where it becomes wrong is if you cling to it so tightly, you miss out the incredible gospel opportunities that we have as people who do not know God are brought into our lives. And our passion for the lost should consume our passion for an individual culture. Bartholomew almost misses out on the incredible kingdom work that God has planned for him because he has disdain for Nazareth, this podunk little community of about 2,000 people. That's Bartholomew. Let's look next, very, very briefly, at Matthew. That's the next name in our list. We've already looked at Matthew last, uh, several uh, weeks ago. We looked at Matthew in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. In Matthew, we saw a tax collector who became a repentant person, who became a redeemed person, who became someone who was excited about inviting others into participating in his relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's just very briefly the principle that I think we see from Matthew's life. It's this, we must minister as repentant sinners. The principle from Matthew's life is that we must minister as repentant sinners. We talked about that extensively several weeks ago, so I won't go into great detail, but as we engage in following after our Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize as we are prepared by him to do the ministries he's called us to do, we are repentant sinners who are privileged with the opportunity to share Christ with others. That's Matthew. The last name that we have here in this second group of four people is Thomas. And Thomas's most famous incident in his life comes in John chapter 20. And so if you want to just go ahead and turn to John chapter 20, we see Thomas's moment in the sun here in the Gospel of John. It's not positive, but that's okay. Thomas has very has no positive statements that he makes in the Gospel of John. We see Thomas, who's sometimes called Doubting Thomas, presented here in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. It says, and now Jesus has appeared to his other disciples, verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, because he was a twin most likely, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, this was not out of character of Thomas based upon what we know from the rest of the Gospel of John, his personality. For example, John chapter 11, verse 16 uh, Jesus has just told his disciples they're going to go, go visit Lazarus and, and be, with, be with Lazarus. He's also just told his disciples that Lazarus is dead. Thomas, kind of, uh, again, every mention that we have of him in the Gospel of John is a negative statement. John hears that they're going to go be with Lazarus. And he tell, Jesus is going to go be with Lazarus, and so he tells the other disciples, let's go with him so that we may die too. <laughs> Not exactly uh, the guy who sees things with rose-colored glasses. Uh, later in the Gospel of John, in uh, John chapter 14, Jesus is talking about going to be with the Father and them coming with him. In John chapter 14, Thomas goes, well, we don't know the way. Again, kind of a negative. We don't know what to do. How, do, how can we follow you? 
Uh, Thomas is kind of, again, is presented in the Gospel of John. Uh, Thomas is kind of presented the, as the disciple of can't or won't or don't. Kind of a negative attitude. Listen to what happens to him in the, in the remainder of the chapter here, this, this passage. Verse 26 He just said, I will never believe unless I'm able to do this. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, Thomas's final words in the Gospel of John perfect words, his first positive words, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Here's a principle from discipleship that I think we learned from Thomas's life. As we look at Thomas's life, we realize this, we must reject cynicism and pessimism. As we look at Thomas's life, we realize we must reject cynicism and pessimism talked with uh, Whitney this week about which illustrations would be appropriate to share Uh, I am not a very positive person oftentimes I am a very difficult person to live with Uh, whenever I see a glass half full of water I don't say it's half empty I say it's probably poisoned okay Um, where did the water come from it's very difficult. Uh, you pray for my wife. It's difficult to be married to me. It's difficult to uh, ask my coworkers. It's difficult to be my coworker. Uh, it's difficult to, to be my child. Uh, Hannah, this last week, uh, bless her heart, she, she won a prize, okay? And the library, she did this little contest with the library, build a, build a monster. Uh, and she, she won a ribbon, okay? And so she, she says, I won a ribbon. Daddy said, probably a participation prize. What kind of father does that? A negative one. Here's, here's the deal. Cynicism is okay in the short term, okay? I may be cynical, but I'm generally right. <laughs> and all my surprises are good. It's a wonderful thing about being an optimist. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, a pessimist, John Maynard Keynes said that uh, he's an econom- uh, economist, and, or was an economist, and he said, uh, and he's talking about long-term and short-term because, of course, in the long-term, we're all dead. Okay? Now, here's the, th- here's the truth, though, for the Christian. Here's the truth for the Christian. There's a huge part of my personality that's not going to make it into heaven. Why? What's there to be cynical about in heaven? Oh, this is okay, I guess. No. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this in verse 16, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. That is, he acknowledges, short term, things are bad. But listen to this. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you see the point there? Long term, the thing, the, our long term outlook is very rosy. <laughs> our long term outlook is perfect unity with God, and these momentary light afflictions that a pessimist can sometimes be overwhelmed by are nothing in comparison with obtaining Jesus Christ. And 
Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas. I'm not sure that's the best mes- misnomer for him. I'm not sure that's the, the best title for him. Really, he's, he's pessimistic Thomas. He fails to see the kingdom work going on around him because he's so overwhelmed by the negative things. But again, look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter, he talks about a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, G, G, uh, Paul, Peter says this, uh, according to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a, a living hope that is a, a hope that's alive in us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, in this, you're kind of depressed right now. No, he says, in this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is good news. And as we think about God's kingdom work among us, those of us who have the tendency to look at the the half-empty glass must realize, look, in the long term, things are pretty good. (laughs) Things are wonderful. And the things, the momentary light afflictions that affect us now should have no bearing in the joy that's within our soul because we understand that God's kingdom is coming. That's what I believe we learn from Thomas. Thomas looks at the negative things that are going on around him temporarily becomes overwhelmed with them. Well, let's look next to the third group of disciples. There's less of these guys. Oh, there's the same number of these guys. There's less that we know about these men. Let's look, first of all, at John, the son of Alphaeus. John, the son of Alphaeus, is mentioned four times in Scripture. They mention the disciples, but we know really nothing else about him. We know nothing about what he was involved in, the things that he did following Jesus' ministry in his life. And uh, he, he's kind of lost to us in, in many ways. And yet, we know that he did amazing things. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says this. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. In other words, uh, the signs of an apostle were to do signs and wonders and mighty works. James, the son of Alphaeus, was an apostle. We know he did signs and wonders and amazing works. But you know what else we know about him? Zilch. I mean, we know that he was around whenever the, the gospel writers talk about the disciples did this or this, but that's, that's all. What's the principle that I think we learned then from James, the son of Alphaeus' life? Well, I think it's this, that we must hold our, our lives and ministries very loosely. You know, James did some incredible things, and I believe that the fruit of his ministry continues today. We know that Jesus built his church upon the ministry of these first 12 disciples Christ himself being the cornerstone of that foundation. And yet, we don't have any books written by James. We don't have any, uh, any testimony of the things that he did, apart from, from some, some traditions. We have no scriptural testimony concerning his works. And yet, he did incredible things. You know, God isn't necessarily going to preserve any of our ministries. There probably won't be any buildings named after us. There probably won't be some sort of major multi-million dollar uh, 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 
ministry that, that bears our, our names. You know, we're not going to be prominent, most likely, any of the people in this room, unless there's someone visiting that I don't know about, uh, we're not going to be prominent on into the next you know, decades after our lives. But <laughs> the ministries that are ultimately God's are going to continue anyway. And God can cause this to build into our children, if we have children, build into our friends, build into those around us, those whom God has placed in our lives, to cause them to grow into the people that God has desired them to be, and that can have eternal ramifications. Ministries are not ultimately ours, they're the Lord's anyway. And the things that are truly of God are going to continue on into eternity. The things that aren't will not last long. There's a prominent ministry that's uh, going through a transition time. The leader of this ministry, very, very famous uh, Christian, just got an email this past week talking about their transition plans. As this saint grows older, he, his ministry is, is it's not going to last for decades. You know, he's reaching the age where uh, he, he's, he may not be with us in uh, 10 years. He may still be with us, but his ministry is coming to a close in terms of its prominence. And these men that kind of head his ministry are, are struggling. What do we do? How do we continue on this, this ministry? And they've realized, look, uh, the things that were of God are going to continue. The things that weren't of God won't continue. The things that were of God that he's saying no more, he'll say no more, and that's fine. As we do the ministries God's called us to do, we do them loosely, recognizing that they're his ministries. The next disciple that we look at is Simon the Zealot. Simon, it says here, Simon who was called the Zealot. Now, a Zealot in the first century Judaism was a person who was part of a certain subgroup of Jewish culture. Remember, as we talked about the Pharisees earlier, we talked about kind of at least four main groups that existed in Jewish religious life. You had the, the real liberal Jews, the, the Herodians. Now, these Herodians were not really uh, part of Jewish religious life almost whatsoever. These were people like Matthew, the tax collector, and other tax collectors who've been excluded from, from synagogue life oftentimes, and so they're, they're kind of the, the far left. Then you have the, the Sadducees, who were kind of like liberal Jews, and, and these Sadducees uh, denied things like the resurrection, and so they, they weren't very conservative. Then you had the, the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were, were more doctrinally conservative, but they'd also made some accommodations. And then, on the far right, you had the Zealots. And these guys were intense. They believed that any sort of uh, paying of taxes to Rome or the emperor was uh, ungodly. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't support a, a pagan emperor. They would uh, murder people who were sympathetic to Rome. In fact, uh, according to uh, one contemporary source, whenever the Romans uh, would later in this, in this uh, century, I believe 70 AD, would, would uh, uh, surround Jerusalem and head it under siege, some people in Jerusalem suggested compromising with the Romans, and the zealots had them murdered. And because of the zealots, the, the whole uh, city of Jerusalem was destroyed. These guys were intense. Simon was a zealot. Now, what do we know about Simon the zealot's life? Not much else. But think about this. In Jesus' 12 disciples, you have Simon the zealot, part of this far right-wing group of Jews. And who else do you have? got Matthew. <laughs> what sort of political discussions do you think Simon and Matthew had? But there they are, eating supper together, doing ministry together. And why? Why were they together? Because their unity was in Jesus Christ, right? 
their unity was in Jesus Christ. And because their unity was in Jesus Christ, they existed, at least from all indications, in somewhat harmony. And we know it today, <laughs> they're definitely existing in harmony, right? Here's what I believe we learned from Simon the Zealot's inclusion here in this list of disciples, is that, is that we, we must find our unity in Christ. We must find our unity in Christ. I have a, a book in my office. It's on my desk right now. I was kind of looking through it this week. It's called Great Leaders in Christian History. And as I flip through that list of great leaders in Christian history, I, I see some leaders that I, I really identify with and I, I agree with strongly. And then I, I find some people that I believe they understood the gospel, and, and, and yet we differ on a, a lot of things. And I find some people in there that probably would have had me burned at the stake because of some of my convictions regarding Scripture. And yet, for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, in that book, we have a unity in Jesus Christ. As we think about the ministry that God has called us to do in following Jesus in discipleship, it's easy to focus on the things that, that tear us apart or fail to unite us. As we look at Simon the Zealot's inclusion, Simon who was called the Zealot's inclusion in this list of disciples, I believe that, that the principle is that we must find our unity in Christ. As, as we think about the differences that exist among us, political differences, economic differences, differences in how we raise our children, differences in, in what we do uh, regarding our, our jobs and our commitments on, 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 on different uh, social issues. Uh, our unity is ultimately based not upon our affinity with one another, not upon how similar we are in our terms of our personalities, but upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you look at Simon's political leanings, and you look at Matthew's political leanings, you realize they were both wrong, you know? <laughs> Matthew was a cheat before coming to Christ. Simon, uh, murdering people for political change, not the best way to go about it. We're just going to go on record there. Right? Both of them were wrong in some of their political leanings. And yet, and yet as they became united through Jesus Christ, there's never indication that their focus changed. Simon, perhaps he began following Jesus, thinking that, that this Messiah was going to bring about radical change, and yet as he became around Jesus and became his disciple, his love for political change subsided and his love for Christ increased. A third disciple we look at here is Judas, the son of James. And uh, we see Judas, the son of James, speaking in John chapter 14, verse 22. We looked at this chapter earlier. John chapter 14, verse 22. Jesus is, is again speaking and, and he, he in verse 21, he says, uh, He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And, and this is what uh, Judas says. And Judas has several names throughout Scripture. Uh, here's what he says in verse 22. Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I think James asks a very good question that reveals a tender heart here. It's a heart of someone who loves Jesus and desires Jesus to be manifest to all around him. Here's a principle that I think we learn from Judas's, Judas, uh, the son of James's life, is that we must long to see the Messiah revealed to the world. The things that we're passionate about are going to be the things that others know about us. Think about uh, things that happen in your life as you get engaged or as you get a new job or 
as, as you get a promotion. You let people know about those things. You're excited about it. It's on your Facebook status. You know, those things that, that we're excited or sometimes not excited about make it in, into our lives that we're proclaiming to people around us. We think about following after Jesus in discipleship. Do we have a passion to see Jesus, the Messiah, revealed to the world around us? Now let's lastly look at Judas, Judas Iscariot, who Luke tells us became a traitor. Turn to John chapter 13. Actually, I'm sorry. First turn to John chapter 12. And here, I believe, is one of the most instructive passages for us as we consider Judas' life. It says that six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said this, verse 5, Why this ointment not why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It's a very noble thought, perhaps. <laughs> it wasn't said from such a hypocritical heart. Look what happens next. It says, verse 6, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money back, he used to help himself what was put into it. What's the difference between Judas and the other 11 disciples? It's not that Judas was a sinner and the other 11 guys were great. Uh, Judas is a sinner just like any of the other 11. Here's what I believe the difference is, and here's the, the principle that we learn. Judas was a hypocrite. We must fear heart-hardening hypocrisy. Heart-hardening hypocrisy is not simply saying that something's sin and then, and then doing something else. A heart-hardening hypocrisy is, is saying something is sin, doing something else, and, and denying that we're doing it. <laughs> denying that the sinfulness of our own heart. John chapter 13, we see that Judas's heart is hardened beyond any hope of repentance. And John chapter 13, Jesus tells Judas to leave, and then he institutes the Lord's Supper. Judas leaves before the Lord's Supper is instituted. 